Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. We have been walking through the book of Genesis now for eight weeks seven, eight weeks, and we're only in chapter three. Um, But the reason why is because what is taught in the book of Genesis is incredibly important. I'm going to say this quote again uh, in another sermon, but A.W. Pink, who's a a, a really great thinker and theologian from ages past, talks about how in the book of Genesis you have in seed form all the major doctrines of the Bible. That, that are planted and that the rest of the Bible continues to grow. And if we don't understand Genesis, we really have a hard time of understanding what the rest of the scriptures teach because it provides a framework. It, provide, or it provides the foundation of massive things, which is why we've taken so much time to look at Genesis 1 and what does it mean that God's our creator? What does it mean that we believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Why is the Word of God so important? Right? So we laid that plank. Then we looked at what is it, what do we see in Genesis 1 about how God created uh, things with order, form, and function? That, that it just didn't randomly happen, but he ordered things in a way and put things to look a certain way, to interact a certain way, uh, put, put things in like, like, like different order, like he ordered night and day. He orders male and female. He orders, you know, the, the, the way things interdependently work together so that life is lived, right? We look, and then we've spent the last several weeks looking at uh, the image of God in man. And what does that mean? And so we've looked just at, uh, you know, things like what, what is our purpose? What is our nature? Why is this so important? And then we've spent a lot of time looking at, you know, what does it mean to work and keep the earth that God has entrusted to us? We looked at the nature of marriage last week, late set for us in Genesis chapter 2, and, and how that not only provides an important building block for all of society with families, But it also uh, begins to shape out how we're to live together. We are to interdepend together. That we're not meant to, we are not uh, self-sustaining people. There's only one who is self-sustaining, and that's God. We weren't made to self-sustain, which is honestly part of the reason why we, we call people into biblical community. To call people to come to Wednesday nights or to come to small groups, to be connected into some form of, because we can't live life alone. And what we saw at the end of Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, when God had finished making all things, it says that God looked out at all he made and saw that it was very good. And the end of Genesis 2 shows that the relationship between Adam and Eve was whole. It was harmonious. It was perfect. In other words, all was as it should be. The Hebrew concept of this is shalom. You guys ever heard that word shalom? Sometimes we can think it's just a greeting, but it's actually a whole picture of wholeness, of harmony. But something happened. 
Something happened that has caused all of this to unravel. And we find out what that is in Genesis chapter 3. So let's turn there now and let's read Genesis chapter 3. I think it's good to see it just in its context. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. These are in there, right, Tony? <laughs> All right, beautiful. <laughs> I'm nervous now. Um, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to, be was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they had heard the sound of God, of the Lord God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband." And he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. 
And the Lord God made for Adam all, or, uh, and the Lord God had made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard their way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. Whoa. Our text begins with the appearance of a serpent. We do not know how, uh, we do not know much other than what verse 1 reveals, that it was more crafty than any other beast that the Lord God had made. But what does it mean that the serpent was crafty? This word does not necessarily have an evil connotation to it in the original language. Uh, a sound way to understand what is being said is that the serpent is clever. As our narrative unfolds, we will see this serpent's craftiness. It is, in fact, evil. But it does so in a very disarming and a very appealing way. See, we, we are also told that God made the serpent. Don't miss that. This shows that the serpent who we will come to see is evil, is not the antithesis to God, but in fact created by God, meaning it is under his authority. This means that things do not operate in a yin and yang way, with God and his goodness on one side and evil on the other side and Satan, and that both are fighting and struggling and you're wondering who's going to win. That is not the case. This might like cause our minds to bend a little bit here, but I think Martin Luther was absolutely right when he makes the statement that the Satan of the scriptures is God's Satan. It is not Satan on his own terms with the possibility of overcoming God. Instead, God is over everything. It is all subject to him. Now you may be asking, why is the serpent there to begin with? This may not be all satisfying for you, but ultimately, the scriptures don't tell us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but that he has revealed things for us, for our good. And ultimately, we are never really told in scripture why there's evil. That's a secret thing that belongs to the Lord. See, the scripture tells us everything we need to know in order to make us wise for salvation, but it does not tell us everything there is to know. God, in his wisdom and out of his goodness, has chosen to reveal to us some things, but not to reveal to us everything. I mean, we do this all the time, don't we? As parents, there are some things we don't tell our children. Not because we don't love them, but because we do love them. Some of the things we handle as parents, our children would not have a clue how to process. And it probably wouldn't be good for them to process that anyway. This is the same picture we have here. 
God is not hiding information out of, out of being a shadow or not good. He is hiding it because this is a little too much for you. I've got this. God has not revealed to us why there is a serpent, why there is evil. But as we see in a moment, God does reveal how he will deal with it. This crafty serpent comes to the woman, Eve, asking a seemingly innocent question. And on the surface, it seems as if there is a genuine desire to know the answer. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? But make no mistake, this is not an innocent question. It is saturated with temptation meant to harm and to put thoughts of doubt in her head. In fact, the tone of the question is one of shock, not one of curiosity. Think more of how gossip spreads. Did you hear about? Can you believe that so-and-so? This is the, the, the nature of the question. The serpent inverts what God had said, moving from you may freely eat of every tree to you shall not eat of any tree. You know what's interesting? Uh, psycho psychology has determined that, do you know that your brain can't think the negative? It can't ponder negative things? It doesn't know how to do that. For example, don't think of an elephant. You all just thought of an elephant, didn't you? This is what he does here. God says, you may freely eat. Satan comes in and goes, you can't eat? And all of a sudden, it begins to shift the whole center of balance. Let's go back for a moment to Genesis 2, 15 to 17, just to remind ourselves of what God actually did say. Verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the, in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So what do we see here? God, after creating the Garden of Eden, puts Adam in it to work it and to keep it, to steward it and to protect it, to nurture it and to guard it. Or to, you know, and then God says he may freely eat of every tree in the garden. In fact, notice the words, you may surely eat of every tree. This shows the great freedom that Adam and eventually Eve had. That God had richly provided for them everything they needed for life and flourishing and to accomplish what God had called them to do. There was only one tree which they could not eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they do, will bring the sentence of death upon them. You see that the serpent exaggerates and distorts God's word in such a way that it focuses on what cannot be done over and against what can be done, making God's word a burden meant to harm us as opposed to the word that protects and brings us life. Think of the implications of this question. For the first time, Eve who already has all the good things at her disposal, living in a wonderful, harmonious relationship with her creator, with Adam and with all of creation, is confronted with this underlying thought. Does God really love you? 
if he did, would he really lay this burden on you? You see, this is what sin does. This is what evil does to us. It's clever enough to appear totally harmless, to have our best interest in mind. And it exaggerates and it distorts God's word in a way that makes it a terrible burden rather than the words of life. And so this puts Eve immediately on the defensive. And in her defense, she too now begins to exaggerate what God has said. She says in verses 2 and 3, We may eat of, of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. This is interesting. God didn't say you couldn't touch it. She's now adding to God's word. She's on the defensive. She doesn't know how to answer this. Her whole center of gravity is now being knocked off as she's trying to craft a defense, but she kind of likes what's being said here. You see the lack of specificity in her answer, and she adds to what God has said that the forbidden tree should not even be touched when that was not a part of the command at all. Eve is on her heels, and the serpent presses further. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The sinister nature of the serpent is now in full bloom, disguised as having the woman's best interest in mind. First, God's word is called into question. Now God is called a liar. The serpent also claims to know God's innermost thoughts, putting her mind or putting in her mind a distrust of God that he is holding something wonderful from her. Eve is deceived into thinking she could be like God, not realizing she already was. Not, on, not only is distrust of God born, but now human selfishness is in its infancy and beginning to grow rapidly in her heart. The serpent promises that distrust and disobedience to God will bring about a positive result. That she can become more than God intended her to be. That her way, or that he made, that the way he made her just wasn't good enough. The serpent promises a higher sophistication, that her eyes would be opened, insinuating they weren't already. And that they would know good and evil, meaning you can be morally autonomous. You can be your own God. You can take the things that, you're, that this supposedly good God is hiding from you because you can have something better apart from him. Two things are interesting about this. Number one, Eve already knew good. But there was a devious undertone that her eyes were not open to all the goodness there could be. What a deception. And number two, that the only promise the serpent really had was that she would know evil. And through distrust and disobedience, that began to be appealing. I have a dear friend in Buffalo, New York, named Matt Polson, And he told me a story of when he and his older brother were little, and they were playing in a sandbox with a neighbor kid. 
and the neighbor kid found a G.I. Joe action figure while digging. Matt is my age, so I know the value of a G.I. Joe action figure. These were, right? I still kind of get excited thinking about my G.I. Joe action figures. Dusty was my favorite, believe it or not. And, and so Matt's brother, though, wanted this action figure. And he went digging around, and he found a hardened piece of animal poop and somehow convinced this kid to trade the G.I. Joe for the piece of animal poop. This is a great illustration for what the serpent is doing here. Don't miss the cunning, evil nature. The serpent, who we learn later in the scriptures is Satan, has not changed his tactics at all. Doubt God's word. He is a liar. God destroys joy and human flourishing. Don't trust him. By all means, don't obey him. Don't live for his glory. Live for your own and making it all sound so good. But all he's really holding is a piece of poop. And what Eve didn't understand is that through all of this, she is conversing with a beast who hates her. He hates Adam. He hates all of mankind. He hates God. He hates you. There is nothing in this conversation that is seeking the good of Eve, but yet Eve is deceived. And Adam, who we learn later, seems to be passively watching all of this unfold neglecting to protect his wife and the garden. Because you go back to Genesis 2, God directly told Adam, who was then to lead and love and care and protect his wife, and he's watching his wife be deceived. He's watching the hater of her soul begin to engage her and entice her, and never once does he step in and say, no, I protect this garden. We protect this garden. He lets it all happen. Husbands, don't hang your wives out to dry, ever. And as we move on into verse 6, we see the moment coalesce into a cataclysmic event from which we continue to reap the bitter result. Eve finds the fruit on the tree appealing. Look at what it says. It says that uh, in verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired for wisdom. She takes it. And then she turns and gives it to Adam who eats without protest. Without Eve having to tempt or convince him, he simply takes it and eats it. See, Adam and Eve, who were meant to have dominion over the beasts of the field, now have been led by one. Adam, who was commanded to serve and guard the garden, has failed to do so by allowing this serpent to work without hindrance and without uh, uh, obstruction. Then they, who were already like God, who knew goodness, who knew beauty, and who knew truth, believed they could experience something greater on their own apart from, from God and bought the lie. They bought the lie that God is not entirely good. 
and had already given them everything they need. And so distrust led to disobedience and a total rejection of God. A total rejection of his commands, his goodness, his authority, and his provision. So now mankind is no longer content to sit in the highest seat of the created order. Instead, we wanted to sit in the seat of the creator himself. And sin enters the world. Which is why sin is such a big deal. Greg Gilbert, in his book, What is the Gospel, which we have out on the table out there, wrote this. Sin is a lot more than just the violation of some impersonal, arbitrary, heavenly traffic regulation. It is the breaking of a relationship. And even more, it is a rejection of God himself. It is a repudiation of God's rule, of God's care, of God's authority and God's right to command those to whom he gave life. And in short, it is the rebellion of the creature against the creator. When sin, what Adam and Eve did was a complete act of treason from which came devastating consequences. They failed to grasp the gravity of sin. And this leads to our first point this morning. The severity of sin cannot be understated. Sin never has your best interest in mind. It only leads us down a dreadful path ending in death. But it entices our senses. It looks so good. It pleases your flesh. It pleases your mind. It makes everything seem hunky-dory and wonderful. But what ended up being was actually a nightmare. Adam and Eve's eyes were open, but not to what they thought. Now they knew shame, something they had never known before. They now have the loss of a perfect relationship to discontentment that needed a remedy. In an effort to alleviate this, they sew fig leaves together to try to cover their shame, to try to cover their nakedness. And this attempt is not only physical, but symbolic of a deeper issue because sin tries to hide. It is out there enticing, and then it tries to hide. This is one of sin's dangerous effects that we believe our efforts can fix everything. Oh, I really screwed up. These fig leaves will make a difference. Oh, I really screwed up. These fig leaves ain't hiding in the trees will make a difference. But Genesis 3 shows us this. We cannot overcome sin on our own. See, Adam and Eve did not turn back to God for help. They tried to take matters into their own hands, highlighting not not only uh, uh, that the relationship between Adam and Eve had changed to the worst, but now their relationship with God has changed for the worst. The God they ran to is now the God they hide from. And we see the breaking of this relationship in verse 8 when we see the sound of of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And this did not elicit joy, but dread and shame. And instead of running, they hid because sin breaks our relationship with God. God willingly created Adam and Eve. 
He established a covenant relationship with them. They lived as his people under his loving care and in the garden. We see how the Lord is referred to as the Lord God throughout this chapter. Remember what that means. It's his personal name. And now they're running from their personal God. This special, beautiful relationship with this personal God, now because of their sin, they hide from him. And then when God, when he asks these questions, now he's not asking because he's seeking information. He is asking to expose the heart. And when he begins to question Adam, notice how the breaking of sin breaks the relationship between people because what is the first thing Adam does? That woman you gave me immediately turns and points to the woman. There is no sorrow before God. There is no desire to see the relationship reconciled. There is no asking for forgiveness, just self-serving, passing the buck, victim mentality. Verses 8 to 13 is extremely heartbreaking. Adam and Eve's relationship had begun to break down earlier in the passage when Adam says nothing while his wife is being tempted. And now we see he just blames her. He throws his own wife under the bus. Because here's what we also see. Sin not only breaks our relationship with God, it breaks our relationship with one another. Sin caused Adam and Eve to feel ashamed before each other, to conceal themselves before each other. It brought division and self-preservation. This was the result of Adam and Eve's catastrophic decision. Their distrust and disobedience did not bring a positive outcome. It brings disaster. And so the Lord pronounces judgment. Because here's what's really important. Sin brings the righteous judgment of God. The serpent goes from being the most crafty to the most cursed. He says to the woman, now you will experience pain in childbirth. And now the relationship between men and women is forever going to be cursed. You will seek to, 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 to uh, how does he promise it? Uh, uh, here it is. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Here's what this means. It means that, that, that now instead of a peaceful relationship of one husband and one wife living out their roles of peace, in peace, they will seek to dominate each other. You will seek to rule. He will seek to dominate. And you will fight, you will fight, you will fight. It will not be one of loving stewardship. It will be one of submit at all cost. And then we realize that our relationship to creation is broken. Where we were to work the ground in goodness and righteousness now will become by the sweat of our brow. Because here's the deal. Sin causes death to everything it touches. Death of our relationship with God, death in our relationship with each other, death to the harmony we, uh, we were supposed to have with creation and death to our physical bodies. You'll see in just a couple of chapters, you're going to see this march of death. And he died, 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 and he died. When, it, when it's all said and done, God banished Adam and Eve from the garden. They cannot stay there. The serpent is found to be a liar and God is proved true. Adam and Eve gained nothing, but they lost everything. Because they are our first parents, sin has been passed to all of us with its devastating effects. 
I, do not, I do not mean to sound trite or like I'm giving a Sunday school answer, but the number one problem that we experience in our world today, the number one struggle that you struggle with every day is sin. The answer is easy. The effects of sin are so complicated and so intermingled and so devastating. And because this sin gets passed to all of us, here is a hard truth we have all got to understand. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 tells us. Every single one of us. From birth, our relationship with God is broken. It affects all of our relationships now. And because of that, we are all under God's judgment. We all face death, and none of us can overcome this on our own. But there's hope. There are seeds of hope here. We see it in God's judgment on the serpent where the seed of the woman will bring victory to what has been defeated. We see it in verse 21 where God himself clothes Adam and Eve with an animal skin. What has to happen for an animal skin to be given? Something has to die and blood has to be shed, doesn't it? God promises to send a deliverer who will be born of a woman, who will bring victory over the one who, who, who brought us sin. God shedding the blood of an innocent animal in order to make suitable clothes to cover Adam and Eve shows us that, number one, in order for shame to be truly covered, God must do it. And number two, blood must be shed. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of both of these. Jesus is the Son of God sent by His Father, born of a woman, to destroy the works of the devil. He did this by living a perfect, sinless life, shed His own blood on the cross, and rose again to new life, causing sin to die, causing death to die, and Satan into utter ruin. Because do not miss this. Sin is defeated in Jesus Christ. And we are saved from sin through Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross satisfying God's righteous judgment for sin even though he didn't sin at all. Jesus was blameless and yet died a sinner's death. He is his people's substitute. When we place our faith in Jesus, sin is overcome because he overcame it. That our relationship with God that is broken is restored. Our relationship to others is restored. Our sin already punished on the cross. This is why as a parent, we tried really hard never to use the punishment word with our children. Jesus takes our punishment. Our disobedience still brings consequences. And we are made alive with Christ with an eternal hope of being with him in his kingdom forever. Don't miss the hope of this passage. I hope and pray that we carry two things with us. The severity of sin and how it's broken the world and me. And number two, the significance of Christ and his work on the cross that overcomes it all. So how should we respond? Number one, what is your posture sin. Are there areas of your life where you're trying to sow fig leaves together? 
Are there areas of your life that you are trying your best to hide from God and others? Are there things in your life that you know are, that you wouldn't want anyone else to know? Thinking that I can control this little fire. I promise you, you can't. Sin will always lead you farther than you want to go. It is never satisfied with a little bit. It always wants more. It's like a little fire that begins to break out of the fire pit that wants to burn the whole forest down. Do you see it for what it is? Do you see the one behind it all absolutely hates you and wants to destroy your life? And will you turn to Jesus? Not just once, but every day. That you and I would repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ every single day because he is the only one who can quench that fire. He is the only one that can bring us new life. And what a new life it is. When the beauty of God and his truth is seen for the weight that it is over the enticing lies of Satan and sin. And finally, rejoice in the magnificent work of Jesus to overcome our sin and to save us. Are you looking to any other Savior but Jesus to overcome sin in your life? That's a lie, too. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Oh, embrace him every day. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son. And God, we are, this is a sobering passage, Father. This is a sobering moment to think about just how drastic the fall is and what tremendous consequences that it continues to have in the world and in my own life and in our own lives, God. And I pray that we would see it for what it is. And that, God, you would cause us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That, God, we would not be fearful of the word repentance, but see it as life-giving. That it is an invitation to find forgiveness, life, and mercy, hiding under the work of Christ on the cross, standing in the midst of his victorious resurrection. Thank you for Jesus and his work on our behalf. In your son's name we pray, amen, amen.